Chapter Thirteen of the Empire of Russia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tavarish. The Empire of Russia from the Remotest Periods to the Present Time by John Stevens Cabot Abbott. Chapter Thirteen The Reign of Ivan the Fourth from 1546 to 1552 the title of tsar marriage of ivan the fourth virtues of his bride depraved character of the young emperor terrible conflagrations insurrections the rebuke wonderful change in the character of ivan the fourth confessions of sin and measures of reform sylvester and alexis adashev the code of laws reforms in the church encouragement to men of science and letters the ambassage of Schlitt, war with Kazan, disasters and disgrace, immense preparations for the chastisement of the Horde, the march, repulse of the Tauridians, siege of Kazan, incidents of the siege. Though the monarchs of Russia, in all their relations with foreign powers, took the title of Tsar or Emperor, they also retained that of Grand Prince, which was consecrated by ancient usage and now the envoys of ivan the fourth were traversing russia in all directions to find among the maidens of noble blood one whose beauty would render her worthy of the sovereign the choice at last fell upon anastasia the daughter of a lady of illustrious rank who was a widow language is exhausted by the russian analysts in describing the perfections of her person mind and heart all conceivable social and moral excellences were in her united with the most brilliant intellectual gifts and the most exquisite loveliness the marriage was performed by the bishop in the church of notre dame you are now said the metropolitan in conclusion united forever by virtue of the mysteries of the gospel prostrate yourselves then before the most high and secure his favor in the practice of every virtue but those virtues which should especially distinguish you are the love of truth and of benevolence prince love and honor your spouse princes truly christian be submissive to your husband for as the redeemer is the head of the church so is man the head of the woman for many days moscow was surrendered to festivity and rejoicings the emperor devoted his attention to the rich the empress to the poor anastasia since the death of her father had lived remote from the capital in the most profound rural seclusion suddenly and as by magic she found herself transported to the scenes of the highest earthly grandeur but still she maintained the same beautiful simplicity of character which she had developed in the saddened home of her widowed mother Ivan the Fourth was a man of ungovernable passions, and accustomed only to idleness, he devoted himself to the most gross and ignoble pleasures. Mercilessly he confiscated the estates of those who displeased him, and with caprice equal to his mercilessness, he conferred his possessions upon his favorites. He seemed to regard his arbitrary conduct as indicative of his independence and grandeur. The situation of Russia was perhaps never more deplorable than at the commencement of the reign of Ivan the Fourth. The Glinskys were in high favor, 
and easily persuaded the young emperor to gratify all their desires. Laden with honors and riches, they turned a deaf ear to all the murmurs which despotism the most atrocious exhorted from every portion of the empire. The inhabitants of Pskov, oppressed beyond endurance by an infamous governor, sent seventy of their most influential citizens to Moscow to present their grievances to the emperor. Ivan IV raved like a madman at what he called the insolence of his subject in complaining of their governor. Almost choking with rage, he ordered the seventy deputies to be put to death by the most cruel tortures. Anastasia wept in anguish over these scenes, and her prayers were incessantly ascending that God would change the heart of her husband. Her prayers were heard and answered. The same power which changed Saul of Tarsus into Paul the Apostle seemed to renew the soul of Ivan IV. History is full of these marvelous transformations, a mental phenomenon only to be explained by the scriptural doctrine of regeneration. In Ivan's case, as in that of thousands of others, afflictions were instruments made available by the Holy Spirit for the heart's renewal. Moscow was at this time a capital of vast extent and of great magnificence. As timber was abundant and easily worked, most of the buildings, even the churches and the palaces, were constructed of wood. Though almost every house was surrounded by a garden, these enclosures were necessarily not extensive, and the city was peculiarly exposed to the perils of conflagration. On the 12th of April, 1547, the cry of fire alarmed the inhabitants, and soon the flames were spreading with fury, which baffled all human power. The storehouses of commerce, the magazines of the crown, the convent of Epiphany, and a large number of dwellings extending from the gate of Ilinsky to the Kremlin and the Moskva were consumed. The river alone arrested the destruction. A powder magazine took fire, and with a terrible explosion its towers were thrown into the air, taking with them a large section of the walls. The ruins fell like an avalanche into the river, completely filling up the channel, adding the destruction of a deluge to that of the fire. A week had hardly passed ere the cry of fire again was raised, and in a few hours the whole section of the city on the other side of Yauza was in ashes. This region was mostly occupied by mechanics and manufacturers. The destruction of the city was almost as entire and as signal a proof of the divine displeasure as that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Even the metropolitan bishop, who was in the church of the Assumption, pleading for divine interposition, was with great difficulty rescued. Smothered and in a state almost of insensibility, he was conveyed through billows of flame and smoke. Seventeen hundred adults, besides uncounted children, perished in the fire. For many days the wretched inhabitants were seen wandering about in the fields and among the ruins, searching for their children, their friends, or any articles of furniture which might by chance have escaped the flames. Many became maniacs, and their cries arose in all directions like the howlings of wild beasts. The emperor and the nobles, to avoid the spectacle of so much misery, retired to the village of Vorobyov, a few miles from Moscow, the whole population of Moscow being in a state of despair and reckless of consequences, were ripe for any conspiracy against an emperor and his favorites, who
whose iniquities in their judgment had brought down upon them the indignation of heaven. Several of the higher clergy, in cooperation with some of the princes and nobles, resolved to arouse the energies of the populace to effect a change in the government. The Glinskys were the advisers and instigators of the king. Against them the fury of the populace was easily directed. These doomed minions of despotism were pursued with fury energized by despair. Ivan the Fourth was quite unable to protect them. The Glinskys, with their numerous partisans, had returned to Moscow to make arrangements for the rebuilding of the Kremlin, when the mob fell upon them and they were nearly all slain. In the eye of the populace there was something so sacred in the person of their prince that no one thought of offering him any harm. Ivan the Fourth, astounded by this outbreak, was trembling in his palace at Vorobyov, and his truly pious wife Anastasia was, with tears, pleading with heaven, when one of the clergy, an extraordinary man named Sylvester, endowed with the boldness of an ancient prophet, entered the presence of the emperor. He was venerable in years, and his grey locks fell in clusters upon his shoulders. The boy-king was overawed by his appearance. One word from that capricious king would cause the head of Sylvester to fall from the block, but the intrepid Christian, with the solemnity of an ambassador from God, with pointed finger and eye sparkling with indignation, thus addressed him. God's avenging hand is suspended over the head of a God-forgetting, man-oppressing Tsar. Fire from heavens had consumed Moscow. The anger of the Most High has called up the people in revolt and is spreading over the kingdom anarchy, fury, and blood. Then, taking from his bosom a copy of the New Testament, he read to the king those divinely inspired precepts which are alike applicable to monarchs and peasants, and, in tones subdued by sadness, urged the king to follow these sacred lessons. The warning was heeded, and Ivan became a new creature. Whatever explanations philosophy may attempt of the sudden and marvelous change of the character of Ivan the Fourth, the fact remains one of the marvels of history. He appears to have been immediately overwhelmed with a sense of his guilt. With tears he extended his hand to the courageous monitor, asked imploringly what he could do to avert the wrath and secure the favor of heaven, and placed himself at once under the guidance of his new-found friend. Sylvester, a humble world-renouncing Christian, sought nothing for himself and would accept neither riches nor honors, but he remained near the throne to strengthen the young monarch in his good resolutions. There was a young man, Alexis Adashev, connected with the court, who possessed a character of extraordinary nobleness and loveliness. He was of remarkable personal beauty, and his soul was pure and sensitive, entirely devoted to the good of others, without the least apparent mixture of sordid motives. He engaged in the service of the Tsar, and became to him a friend of priceless value. Alexis, mingling freely with the people, was acquainted with all their wants and griefs, and he, cooperating with Sylvester, inspired the emperor with a heart to conceive, and energy to execute all good things. From this conjunction is to be dated the commencement of the glory of the reign of Ivan the Fourth. The first endeavor of the reformed monarch was to quell the tumult among the people. 
Three days after the assassination of the Glinskys, a mob from Moscow rushed out to the village of Vorobyov, surrounded the palace, and demanded one of the aunts of the emperor and another of the nobles who had become obnoxious to them. The king immediately opened a fire upon mob and dispersed them. This decisive act restored order. Ivan IV immediately devoted all his energies to preparing dwellings for the houseless poor and in relieving their necessities. His whole soul seemed aroused to promote the happiness of his subjects, both temporal and spiritual, and all selfish considerations were apparently obliterated from his mind. In order to consolidate, by the aids of religion, the happy change effected in the government and in his own heart, the young sovereign shut himself up for several days in solitude, and in the exercises of self-examination, fasting, and prayer, made the entire consecration of himself to his Maker. He then assembled the bishops in one of the churches, and in their presence, with touching words and tearful eyes, made confessions of his faults, implored divine forgiveness, and then, with the calmness of a soul, relieved of the burden of sin, received the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. With true nobility of soul, he wished his penitence to be as conspicuous as his sins had been. He resolved to humble himself before his Maker, and in the presence of all Russia, that his subjects universally might understand the new principles which animated his heart, and the new desires which would enlist his energies. Every city in the empire received orders to send deputies to Moscow, chosen from all the ranks of society, to attend the matters of the utmost importance to the country. The Sabbath morning after their arrival they were all assembled, an immense multitude, in one of the public squares of the city. The Tsar, accompanied by the clergy and the nobles, left the palace of the Kremlin to meet the deputies. The solemnity of the Sabbath hallowed the scene, and the people received their sovereign in profound silence. The Metropolitan Bishop first offered a prayer. Ivan IV, then standing on a platform, addressed the bishop in the following terms. Holy Father, your zeal for religion, your love for our country, are well known to me. Aid me in my good intentions. I lost while an infant my parents, and the nobles who sought only their own aggrandizement, neglected entirely my education, and have usurped in my name wealth and power. They have enriched themselves by injustice, and have crushed the poor without any one daring to check their ambition. I was, as it were, both deaf and dumb to my deplorable ignorance, for I heard not the lamentations of the poor, and my words solaced them not in their sorrows. Who can tell the tears which have been shed, the blood which has flowed? For all these things the judgment of God is to be feared. Bowing then on all sides to the people, the monarch continuing thus addressed them, O oh, you my people, whom the all-powerful has entrusted to my care, I invoke this day in my behalf both your religion and the love you have for me. It is impossible to repair past faults, but I will hereafter be your protector from oppression and all wrong. Forget those griefs which shall never be renewed. Lay aside every subject of discord and let Christian love fraternize your hearts. From this day I will be your judge and your defender. Religious ceremonies, simple yet imposing, closed the scene. Alexis Adashev was appointed Minister of Justice, receiving special instructions to watch the empire with a vigilant eye. 
that the poor especially should be subject to no oppression. From that moment all the actions of the sovereign were guided by the counsels of Sylvester and Adasha. Ivan the Fourth assembled around him a council of his wisest and best men, and ever presided in person over their meetings. With great energy he entered upon the work of establishing a code of laws which should be based upon love of justice and good order. In the year 1550 this important code was promulgated, which forms almost the basis of Russian civilization. On the 23rd of February 1551, a large convention of the clergy, of the nobles, and of the principal citizens of the empire was assembled at the Kremlin, and the emperor presented to them, for their own consideration and approval, the code of laws which has been framed. The mind of Ivan IV expanded rapidly under these noble toils, and in a speech of great eloquence he urged them to examine these laws, to point out any defects, and to cooperate with him in every endeavor for the prosperity of Russia. After having thus settled the affairs of the state, the monarch turned his attention to those of the church, urging the clergy to devote themselves to the work of ecclesiastical reform, to add simplicity to the ceremonies of religion, to prepare books of piety for people, to train up a thoroughly instructed clergy for the pulpits, to establish rules of the decorous observance of divine worship, to abolish useless monasteries, to purify the convents of all immorality, and to insist that ecclesiastics of every grade should be patterns of piety for their flocks. The clergy eagerly engaged in this plan of reform, and vied with their Christian monarchs in their efforts for the public weal. Among the number of projects truly worthy of the Grand Prince, we must not neglect particular mention of his attempt to enrich Russia by encouraging the immigration from other lands of men distinguished in the arts and sciences. A distinguished German named Schlitt, being in Moscow in 1547, informed the Tsar of the rapid progress Germany was making in civilization and enlightenment. Ivan IV listened attentively and, after many interviews and protracted questionings, proposed that he should return to Germany as an envoy from Russia and invite, in his name, to Moscow, artists, physicians, apothecaries, printers, mechanics, and also literary men, skilled in the languages dead or living, and learned theologians. Schlitt accepted the mission and hastened to Augsburg, where the Emperor Charles V was then presiding over a diet. Schlitt presented to him a letter from Ivan IV, relative to this business. Charles was a little doubtful as to the expediency of allowing illustrious men from his empire to emigrate and thus add to the consideration and power of a rival kingdom. Nevertheless, after a long deliberation with an assembled states, he consented to gratify the Tsar on consideration that he would engage by oath not to allow any of the artists or the literati to pass from Russia into Turkey, and that he would not employ their talents in any manner hurtful to the German Empire. Turkey was at the time assuming an attitude so formidable that it was deemed expedient to increase the power of Russia, as that kingdom might thus more effectually aid as a barrier against the Turks, while at the same time it was deemed a matter of the utmost moment that Turkey should receive no aid whatever from Christian civilization. 
Charles V accordingly gave Schlitt a written commission to raise his corps of emigrants. He soon assembled 120 illustrious men at Lübeck, where they were to embark for Russia. But in the meantime, the opposition had gained ground, and even Charles V himself had become apprehensive that Russia, thus enlightened, might attain to formidable power. He accordingly had Schlitt arrested, the corps of immigrants thus deprived of their leader, and consequently disheartened, soon dispersed. Several months passed away before Ivan IV received intelligence of the sad fate of his envoy. Though the plan thus failed, nevertheless, quite a number of these German artists, notwithstanding the prohibition of the emperor, effected their escape from Germany, secretly entered Russia, and engaged in the service of the Tsar, where they were very efficient in contributing to Russian civilization. The barbarian horde at Kazan still continued to annoy Russia with very many incursions. Some were mere petty forays, others were extended invasions, but all were alike merciless and bloody. In February 1550, Ivan IV, then but twenty-two years of age, placed himself at the head of a large army, to descend the Volga and punish the horde. The monarch was young and totally inexperienced in war. A series of terrible disasters from storms and floods thinned his ranks, and the monarch in great dejection returned to Moscow to replenish his forces. Again, early in December, he hastened to meet his army, which had been rendezvoused at Nizhny Novgorod on the Volga about three hundred miles west of Moscow. In the early spring they descended the river, and in great force encamped before the walls of Kazan. The walls were of wood. The Russians were sixty thousand strong, and were aided with several batteries of artillery. The assault was immediately commenced, and for one whole day the battle raged with equal valor on the part of the assailants and the defendants. The next day a storm arose, the rain falling abundantly and freezing as it touched the ground. The encampment was flooded, and the assailants, unable to make any progress, were again compelled to beat a retreat. These reverses mortified the young Tsar. Though he succeeded in effecting a treaty with the barbarians, which in some degree covered his disgrace. But the horde, entirely disorganized, paid no regard to treaties and continued their depredations. Again in the year 1552, the Tsar prepared another expedition to check their ravages. He announced to the council, in a very solemn session, that the time had arrived when it was necessary at all hazards to check the pride of the horde. God is my witness, said he, that I do not seek vain glory, but I wish to secure the repose of my people. How shall I be able in the day of judgment to say to the Most High, Behold me and the subject thou hast entrusted to my care, if I do not shelter them from the eternal enemies of Russia, from these barbarians, from whom one can have neither peace nor truce? The lords endeavored to persuade the emperor to remain at Moscow and to entrust the expedition to his experienced generals, but he declared that he would not expose his army to perils and fatigues, which he was not also ready and willing to share. Though many were in favor of a winter's campaign, as Kazan was surrounded with streams and lakes which the ice would then bridge, 
yet ivan decided upon the summer as more favorable for the transportation of his army down the rivers by the latter part of may the waters of the volga and the oka were covered with bateaux laden with artillery and with military stores and the banks of those streams were crowded with troops upon the march nizhny novgorod where the oka empties into the volga was as usual the appointed place of rendezvous the sixteenth of june ivan took leave of the empress anastasia her emotion at parting was so great that she fell fainting into the arms of her husband from his palace ivan proceeded to the church of the assumption where the blessing of heaven was implored and then issuing orders that the bishops all over the empire should offer prayers daily for the success of the expedition he mounted his horse and accompanied by the cavalry of his guard took the route to kolomna a city on the oka about a hundred miles south of moscow it will be remembered that the tartar horde existed in several vast encampments one of these encampments occupied Torid, as the region north of the crimea and including that peninsula was then called these barbarians thinking that the russian army was now five hundred miles west of moscow at kazan and that empire was thus defenseless with a vast army of invasion were on the eager march for moscow ivan and kolomna heard joyfully of their approach for he was prepared to meet them and to chastise them with merited severity on the twenty-second of july the horde unconscious of their danger surrounded the walls of tula a city about a hundred miles south of kolomna ivan himself heading a division of the army fell fiercely upon them and the tatars were totally routed losing artillery camels banners and a large number of prisoners they were pursued a long distance as in wild rout they fled back to their own country this brilliant success greatly elated the army ivan the fourth sending his trophies to moscow as an encouragement to the capital again put his army in motion towards kazan the relation which existed between the sovereign and his pastor the faithful metropolitan bishop may be inferred from the following communications which passed between them equally worthy of them both may the soul of your majesty wrote the metropolitan remain pure and chaste be humble in prosperity and courageous in adversity the piety of a sovereign saves and blesses his empire the tsar replied worthy pastor of the church we thank you for your christian instructions we will engrave them in our heart continue to ask your wise counsels and aid us also with your prayers we advance against the enemy may the lord soon enable us to secure peace and repose to the christians on the thirteenth of august with his assembled army he reached vyansk on the volga about fifty miles above kazan here he encamped to concentrate and rest his troops after so long a march barges freighted with provisions merchandise and munitions of war were incessantly arriving from the vast regions watered by the volga and the oka as by magic an immense city spread out over the green plain tents glistened in the sun banners waved and horsemen and footmen in all the gorgeous panoply of war extended as far as the eye could reach while resting here ivan the fourth sent an embassy to kazan saying that the tsar sought their repentance and amendment not their destruction that if they would deliver up to the punishment of the authors of sedition 
he would give satisfactory pledges of future friendliness they might live in peace under the paternal government of the tsar to this message a contemptuous and defiant response was returned by the tatar khan the answer was closed with these words we are anxiously awaiting your arrival and are all ready to commence our festivities that very day the russian army amounting to one hundred and fifty thousand men arrived within sight of kazan a prairie four miles in width carpeted with flowers extended from volga to the range of mountains at the base of which the city stood the tatars abounding in wealth by the aid of engineers and architects from all lands had surrounded the city with massive walls defended with towers ramparts and bastions in the most formidable strength of military art as then known within the walls rose the minarets of innumerable mosques and the turrets of palaces embellished with all the gorgeousness of oriental wealth and taste the horde relying upon the strength of their fortification remained behind their walls where they prepared for a defense which they doubted not would be successful two days were employed in disembarking the artillery and the munitions of war while thus engaged a deserter escaped from the city and announced to the tsar that the fortress was abundantly supplied with artillery provisions and all means of defense that the garrison consisted of thirty two thousand seven hundred veteran soldiers that a numerous corps of cavalry had been detached to scour the surrounding country and raise an army of cavalry and infantry to assail the besiegers in flank and rear while the garrisons should be prepared to sally from their entrenchments in the twenty-third of august at the dawn of day the army advancing from the river approached the city the moment the sun appeared in the horizon at the sound of innumerable trumpets the whole army arrested their steps and the sacred standard was unfurled presenting the effigy of jesus christ our saviour surmounted by a golden cross ivan the fourth and his staff alighted from their horses and beneath the shadow of the banner with prayers and other exercises of devotion received the sacrament of the lord's supper the monarch then rode along the ranks and in an impassioned harangue roused the soldiers to the noblest enthusiasm exalting the glory of those who might fall in the defence of religion he assured them in the name of russia that their wives and their children should never be forgotten but that they should be the objects of his special care and should ever enjoy protection and abundance in conclusion he assured them that he was determined to sacrifice his own life if necessary to secure the triumph of the cross these words were received with shouts of acclaim the chaplain of ivan elevated to the view of the whole army pronounced a solemn benediction upon the sovereign and upon all the troops and then bowing to the sacred standard exclaimed o lord it is in thy name we now march against the infidels with waving banners and pealing trumpets the army was now conducted before the walls of the city everything there seemed abandoned and in profound silence and solitude not the slightest movement could be perceived not an individual appeared upon the walls many of the russians began to rejoice imagining that the tsar of kazan struck with terror had fled with his army into the forest but the generals more experienced suspected a snare 
and regarded the aspect of affairs as a motive for redoubled prudence. With great caution they made their dispositions for commencing the siege. As a division of seven thousand troops were crossing a bridge which they had thrown over a ditch near the walls, suddenly a violent uproar succeeded the profound silence which had reigned in the city. The air was filled with cries of rage. The massive gates rolled open upon their hinges, and fifteen thousand mounted Tatars, armed to the teeth, rushed upon the little band with a shock utterly resistless, and in a few moments the Russians were cut to pieces in the presence of the whole army. The victorious Tatars, having achieved this signal exploit, swept back again into the city, and the gates were closed. This event taught the Russians prudence. Anticipating a long siege, a city of tents was reared, with its streets and squares beyond the reach of the guns from the walls. Three churches of canvas were constructed where worship was daily held. Day after day the siege was conducted with the usual events witnessed around a beleaguered fortress. There were the thunderings of artillery, the explosions of mines, fierce and bloody sorties, the shrieks of the combatants, and the city ever burning by flames and kindled by red-hot shot thrown over the walls. The Russian batteries grew every day more and more formidable, and the ramparts crumbled beneath their blows. The Russian army was so numerous that the soldiers relieved themselves at the batteries, and the bombardment was continued day and night. At length a Tatar army was seen descending the distant mountains and hastening to the relief of the garrison. Ivan dispatched one half his army to meet them. The Tatars, after a sanguinary conflict, were cut to pieces. As the division returned, covered with dust and blood, and exulting in their great achievement, Ivan displayed the prisoners, the banners, and the spoils he had taken before the walls of the city. A herald was then sent to address these words to the besieged. Ivan promises you life, liberty, and pardon for the past, if you will submit yourselves to him. The response returned was, we had rather die by our own pure hands than perish by those of miserable Christians. The answer was followed by a storm of all the missiles of war. The monarch, wishing as far as possible to save the city from destruction and to avoid the effusion of blood, directed a German engineer to sink a mine under an important portion of the walls. The miners proceeded until they could hear the footsteps of the Kazanians over their heads. Eleven tons of powder were placed in the vault. On the 5th of September, the match was applied. The explosion was awful. Large portions of the wall, towers, buildings, rocks, the mutilated bodies of men, were thrown hundreds of feet into the air and fell upon the city, crushing the dwellings and the inhabitants. The besieged were seized with mortal terror, not knowing to what to attribute so dire a calamity. The Russians, who were prepared for the explosion, waving their swords with loud outcries, rushed in at the breach. But the Kazanians, soon recovering from their consternation, with their breasts and their artillery presented a new rampart and beat back the foe. Thus, day after day, the horrible carnage continued. Within the city and without the city, death held high carnival. There were famine and pestilence and misery in all imaginable forms within the walls. 
in the camp of the besiegers there were mutilation and death's agonies and despair army after army of tatars came to the help of the besieged by they were mown down mercilessly by russian sabers and trampled beneath russian hoofs ivan morning and evening with his generals entered the church to implore the blessings of god upon his enterprise in no other way could he rescue russia from the invasion of these barbarians than by thus appealing to the energies of the sword in the contemplation of such a tragedy the mind struggles in bewilderment and can only say be still and know that i am god end of chapter 13